Hebrews chapter 10. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. How are you guys doing? How are your, how, how's the campus right now? Is it okay? Because I go to Channel Islands and the campus is in complete and utter chaos, right? I don't know. I don't know how CLU is doing. They're just chilling. They're like, I don't care. <laughs> I get my grant. It doesn't matter who's president, right? I just, I just know there's a lot of college campuses in you know, disarray right now. It's quite funny. They'll go back to the Kardashians pretty soon. But. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Uh, for grammatical purposes, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Sometimes it's New King James, sometimes it's ESV. For me, it just depends on whether I can read it or not because of the grammar, right? Whether there's too many, if there's too many uh, run-on sentences, I'll go ESV. <clears throat> Just so you guys know, that was a useless point of information. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Bump down to verse 32. Verse 32. But but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partner with with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is God's word. Are you guys ready? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I pray that your word would affect our hearts tonight. Lord, that we would be transformed by who you are. God, that we would seek you tonight just with humble hearts, Lord. Um, God, looking at your word with a pure conscience, Lord, looking at your word in an open manner, saying, what, what is the Lord going to try and show me tonight? And how can I be open to it? Help me with that. Help us with that, Lord. And I pray as we progress tonight, we would find out how to please you more. We love you. Uh, We give you this time. We give you our worship and our attention. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. 
So, so, here, so here's kind of a question, right? And, 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 and this is a question because all, all of Hebrews is, is just kind of, it, Hebrews is full of warnings, right? And we, we've been learning that. It's like this, this pastor of Hebrews, he's continually telling us, hey, I, I, I'm warning you guys, if you don't cut it out, you're going to lose yourselves, right? And he doesn't even necessarily talk about, oh, God's going to smite you and he's going to punish you and fire is going to rain down. He's saying, if you're not careful, if you're not careful to enter into some of these institutions that God has put in place with you, you have, you have a real danger of kind of losing yourself and losing your soul a little bit, right? He, he's saying you've got to be careful to not put things above Christ. You have to be careful of how you look at him. You have to be careful of how you, uh, how, how you take your rest time seriously, how you take your days off seriously. He's saying that you need to really pay attention to uh, your relationship to the word of God, right? Is, is it a legalistic thing that, you, you know, you only read because you're supposed to? Or is it something you regularly do to take care of your soul, right? And, and, and so the pastor of Hebrews, he's, he's giving us all these warnings. And, and, and what he wanted to articulate to us in Hebrews chapter 9 last week, which was a really long sermon, I'm sorry, right? But um, we, we had to kind of enter into this knowledge of the history of God's covenant, right? That God operates in covenant love. Okay, that, that is the way God operates. He, when, when, I, when I say, hey, God loves you, or hey, Jesus loves you, we automatically hearken back to some definitions we have already of love, don't we? You see, because some of us, when, when I say God loves you, you might think of the way your father loved you, right? And for good or for bad, that might affect the way you look at God. Or if I say God loves you, you might think of the way you might love a significant other, or you might love uh, a, a good friend in your life. And that's not the type of God, that's not the type of love that God wants to operate in. Does that make sense? God has his own type of love that he operates in. And his own type of love is covenant love, saying that he's going to p- pick a particular group of people and he is going to walk with them and he is not going to waver in his faithfulness towards them. That's his covenant love. And the closest love that we can kind of have as a reference point to God's love is the covenant love of marriage. Right? This understanding of, listen, I, I am not going to leave you. It, it, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter where we're at. I'm not leaving you. Right? And so even that reference for us, because it, you know, a lot of you might have grown up in, in really bad households where it's like, man, my parents probably should have split up or your parents did split up or whatever kind of, uh, like my parents had a terrible marriage or my parents, I guess their marriage is okay. It was kind of boring. Even in that, we don't have a really good reference. We don't have a really good reference point. Oh, man, what is God's love for me? And that's why it's really important to know the entire narrative of scripture. It's really important to have the whole narrative of scripture because in it, we understand from Genesis all the way to Revelation of God's covenant faithful love towards his people and how that works and how he operates in that. So I encourage you, as long as it was, if you weren't here last week, to listen to that. Because that's what Hebrews 9 talks about. It talks about how Christ is a greater sacrifice and he's made a way for greater love to be expressed. Right? And now we get here to Hebrews chapter 10. Because we, we talk a lot about how God wants to please us, right? And how, how, how God loves us and how God has this for us and how God has this plan for us, right? And here's a question that I don't often ask myself. Here, here's a question that doesn't often pop into my head just because I'm so, like, consumed with me, right? But I seldom ask this question. 
what gets God absolutely stoked? Right? Or whatever language you guys use. I'm, I'm, I say stoked. Right? What thrills God, right? What, what makes him happy? What pleases God? Right? Because we, we talk a lot about oh, God's plan for my life or the, what God's doing in my life. We know what makes us stoked, right? We know what pleases us, and we want those that we love to know what we love. Does that make sense? Right? We want everyone that we care about to know what pleases us, right? That's, that's a part of a relationship. That's a part of a friendship, a marriage, right? A, a sibling relationship or what, whatever type of relationship. It's really important that you articulate to other people that you care about, hey, this is what makes me happy, right? I want to know what makes you happy, right? So, so that's a part of an abiding relationship is like, hey, what pleases you, right? Hey, what, what, what gets you stoked, right? What do you like, right? And, and oftentimes, I think, God is continually showering me with grace that I, I seldom ask the question, God, what do you love, right? What do you, what do you love, God? Um, and I think we ask ourselves, what does, we, we ask ourselves, like, God, what do you want in our lives, right? What's your plan, right? Um, and like, God, what do you want me to do? I think we ask that question a lot. Or, or we got, like, what is your plan, God? Like, wh- where are you going to have me in the future? Like, we love to ask that question, but the simple question of, God, what pleases you? What do you like? What would you like me to do? Right? What, what, what makes you filled with joy and fulfillment? Right? I seldom ask that question. Right? And I'm, I'm, I'm rarely intentional about searching for what pleases my God. Because if I'm not continually searching for what pleases my wife, I might get in trouble. Right? And if I'm not continually searching for what may please my friends, I might lose my friendships. But the way I rarely ask what pleases God is kind of the same way when you're a kid or even an adult that I'm also guilty of not asking your parents what pleases them, right? My parents are here. I'm trying not to make eye contact with them. But we rarely ask our parents, right? Hey, what pleases you? What, what do you like? Like, what gets you stoked, right? Because they have showered us our childhood with unconditional love showered us with unconditional love. They've provided for us unconditionally, so it would never pop into our heads, well, how can I reciprocate that, right? And that's kind of our relationship with God sometimes. How can I reciprocate the love that you have given me, right? Some of you need to go home and talk to God and your parents right now. The shoe fits, wear it, right? That's what I always say. Luckily, God tells us what pleases him. Right? He doesn't keep us in the dark. He's not passive aggressive about it. Well, what do you think pleases me? Right? Like he's not he's not passive aggressive about any of this stuff. He's very clear of what pleases him. All throughout scripture, he tells us exactly what makes him happy, right? And that's awesome. Aren't there some people in your lives that you wish they would just write down everything that makes them happy, right? That way you wouldn't have to do this weird, awkward dance you've been doing, right? Trying to make them happy, right? Trying to please them, right? God tells us exactly what pleases him, right? And it's all over scripture, but I'll just give you a few verses. I'll just give you a few um, verses of what pleases God. First, it says in the next chapter that Mark will go over next week, he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
right? So uh, the first key to understanding how to please God is, one, acknowledging that he exists, right? I think that's, like, not a very high standard, right? Like, if you have, like, a significant other in your life, and it's like, how do I please you? Well, first, just acknowledge I exist. Okay, right on. Perfect, right? We're already progressing here, okay? And so the first thing is to acknowledge that he exists. That's not a super high standard to meet if you're already a believer, right? This is a big hurdle for a lot of people. And, and, and I, I, I would submit to you if this is a, is a big hurdle for you, my, my rationale is always allow God to prove himself for you. I'm not going to, I can debate science with you all day long and, and I, I can cut off someone's hand and you could watch it grow before your very eyes and still not believe it is a matter of what have you done that God say you should do for him to prove, prove himself? I, I truly believe that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. And when you hear the word of God, and you're like, I'm going to do this. And God manifests himself. He shows himself. Right? Takes leaps of faith. And then the second thing he says is believing that he wants to reward you if you seek him. Right? So, so that's like the first two criteria of starting to please God is first acknowledge he exists. But second... Believe that he wants to reward you for seeking him out. And I don't think I do that a lot, actually. I don't think I actually believe that God wants to reward my curiosity, my asking of questions, perhaps my skepticism, and going forward and asking these questions and and seeking him, right? And seeking him in whatever avenue is good for you. But, but first, we have to realize that we want to please God, that, that he exists, and that he's a good God that wants to reward your diligence, right? And it's the second thing that we see um, when Jesus comes onto the scene. It says in uh, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes onto the scene, right? It's the first time we see him since his birth, right? He just lived as a carpenter for a really long time, and that wasn't like, it wasn't like he was building cabinets, guys. He was a stonemason, right? I mean, lifting huge stones and granite and all these different and, and just making like bedrock and cornerstones for houses and building buildings, right? And, and making all of these things. He was a, he was a blue-collar worker, a stonemason, right? And so he worked for a long time, and he finally comes onto the scene. And he gets baptized to identify himself with the sinfulness of man, right? He, he, he comes and he, he displays that he's a part of the people. And the, the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit descends, and... And you hear this voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right? So we know that God, in order to please God, Jesus has to be involved. Right? That, that God is absolutely pleased with Jesus. Long story short, if you, want to, if you want God to be pleased with you, you want to be in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that our blessings and the favor we find from God is being rooted and having our identities founded in the person of Jesus Christ. If you think to yourself, I'm too sinful, I'm too imperfect, I'm too this, I'm too that, for God to be pleased with me, great news for you. It's not about you, right? Great news for the sinner. If you're perfect, you're pretty bummed out right now, right? But if you're a sinner, you're stoked because it's not about your imperfections anymore. It's about, I have clung on to the identity of Christ. And now, the way God is pleased with Christ, he's now pleased with me as well. That's a burden lifted off your shoulders, people. Just knowing that. 
And he says, further, further, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says in Psalm 147, verse 11, he says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. And lastly, in Hebrews chapter 13, once again later on, spoilers, May God make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All of this is my long way of answering the question of what pleases God. Essentially, God is pleased in your faith towards him and your surrender of allowing him to work in you through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God is pleased to have an intimate relationship with you that results in you flourishing in the calling that God has put on your life. Oh man, man, I, 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 I just love this. And he says, and he exemplifies this in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, one of my favorite verses, he says this, do not fear little flock. He calls us sheep, you know, because we're so skittish and, anxious, right? I want you to think everything wants to kill a sheep, right? Like everything, like everything is a sheep's predator, right? It's got a huge, fat, fluffy body and legs that are like this big, right? It's like wolf's paradise, right? And so he's like, do not fear little sheep because we're so skittish like sheep, right? God calls himself a shepherd, not because shepherd is like this super royal, awesome term, but because we're totally like sheep, right? We're totally like sheep. And he says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, stop being anxious about everything. Stop stressing out about everything. Don't you know that it pleases the creator of the universe to give you his kingdom? Don't you know that it pleases him to do so? That he wants to do so? Listen, God wants to do such radical and amazing things in your life. And he loves you with an immeasurable amount of love, right? He loves you with an immeasurable amount of love, and his mercy is never-ending and never-failing. That he continually wants to shower you with grace and intercede on your behalf. And as we learned last week, there's no middle wall of separation between you and God. There's no middle wall of separation between you and God through, because of what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus did is said, all right, all right, anything that's imperfect of Zach, because there's a lot, right? right? There's, there's a lot of things that separate Zach from God. Because we don't want to worship a God. I've said this so many times, and I, I just want to explain it more. Because we don't want to worship a God that just says, ah, man, dude, you're totally a terrible person, but... Man, like, love for everyone, man. Why don't you just come on into heaven, right? We don't want that because heaven just becomes like this, only forever. Does that make sense? Heaven just becomes filled with sin again, filled with us lying to each other, stealing from one another, doing all of this, only forever. That's why right after Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't say, you know what, just forget about it. Because he didn't want them to live forever as people separated from him. And so what God, is, what God has done, he says, Jesus is just going to take it all. Wash you clean. 
That way, when you enter into heaven, all that will exist is Christ's identity in you. Right? All the other junk right, will be done away with on the cross. There's no set, and that means, guys, so, so forget about eternity for a quick sec. What that means for us now, what that means for us right now is that we get intimacy with God now. Heaven doesn't begin when you die. It begins now. It starts now. That we get access to God. We get to enter into his presence. So the pastor of Hebrews says that in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's saying, listen, guys, we have access to God now. There, there's, there's, there, the separation doesn't exist. Verse 20 says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In the big temple, guys, there was this huge curtain, and it was, it was, meant, it was super long, super thick. It was like three feet thick of curtain. Thick, right? That's gnarly. What? And, and, and it says that when, when Christ died, that that veil in the temple was torn. Because what it represented, guys, was that, that before we couldn't just enter into God's presence, right? But now that Christ has taken away that sin and he has done away with it on the cross, that, that, that veil that was torn in the temple is representative of Christ's body. That he was torn so that we might enter into intimacy with God. That we might be with him. And it says in verse 21, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He is saying, since Christ was punished for whatever sin we have committed, and since he is a priest advocating on our behalf, let's approach God with a little more confidence. Let's stop shying away and almost thinking that he's like this disappointed dad. I'll tell you, in youth ministry, that is one of my greatest hurdles. You would think it's not telling, it's telling kids, hey, stop that and stop touching one another, right? Like, that's one of the biggest things I deal with. But the other thing is that I have to deal with these kids who have been beaten over the head with the fear of God that they're afraid to even come close to him. That when they sin or when they do something wrong, they, they, they feel like God's like this disappointed dad. Like, I'm not angry, son. I'm just expected better from you. Right? Like... That, that's the way a lot of people are approaching God, right? It's a way a lot of people approach God. Like a lot of people know that he's not really angry with us, but, but that he's also disappointed in looking down at you. I feel like that's a lot of the ways we approach God sometimes, right? Like, like this boss, right, where you messed up at work, right? And he calls you into the office and he's like, strike one, right? We often think of God as that way. And, and, and what the pastor of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, listen, you have an advocate. You have a sacrifice who has dealt with these things. Draw near to God with a little more confidence than that. It says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Listen, 
we have to stop approaching God like there's this unknown elephant of sin in the room. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. Well, not a concrete example, but if you found out that one of your friends is gossiping about you, and you talk to that friend, right? There's that weird elephant in the room, huh? There's, there's just that, there's this clear, like, you, you may be like three feet away from each other, but you're like 300 miles apart. Does that make sense? Right? And I think a lot of us approach God that way, like, oh, God, I'm in church and I'm near to you, but like, man, you know that I don't really like you that much, right? And there's, there's this kind of the separation that occurs between us and him. Christ has made a way for us to be able to speak confidently before God. Not arrogantly, right? He's still God. But this ability to speak confidently. This ability to come before him and speak freely. If you guys have ever read the book of Job, it's very interesting because if, Job, if anyone has the right to complain, it's Job. He gets everything taken away from him, right? And his friends come up, and, and at first they seem like really good friends because they're just sitting with him, letting him cry. And then all of a sudden his friends just start spewing off, you must have done something bad, you must have done this, God's punishing you, right? And God, Job didn't do anything wrong. He did nothing wrong. So he's like, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? And what we see all throughout the book of Job is that Job is complaining. He's complaining hardcore, but what makes him a righteous man still is that he's complaining to God. It's between he and God, right? That he has poured forth his heart to God and he expects answers from him. Now, God gives him an answer that he didn't expect and that quite frankly is incredibly scary and frightening. But what Job maintained this righteous attitude in the sense that he didn't complain to anyone else but his God kept it between him and God. And I think we need to understand, we we need to be reflective of our own sin, but be transformed by the fact that God wants to see you succeed. I I, I think I forget that a lot, guys. Um, I need to realize more, maybe you don't, but I need to realize more that it pleases God to see us succeed. It pleases him. It absolutely pleases him to see you thrive in school. It pleases him to see you thrive in your relationships. It pleases him to see you thrive in the things that honor him. It pleases God to see you flourish in the things he has set up for you. It pleases God to see us walk with a clear conscience. To walk with a clear conscience. And we ought to hold fast, as it says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have to continue and we have to keep going forward, having this assurance that the promises God has given you, he is going to be faithful to those. Now, listen, listen. God is not going to sugarcoat and childproof every single corner you turn, right? He's not going to childproof everything for you. He is, he is not going to make everything comfortable and cushy for you because that's not good for your character, one, and it's also not good for the people around you that you have everything easy. He wouldn't love you if he did that. Do you know what it means to say that we have a confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful? It means discouragement, guys. 
discouragement of character, constantly brooding on our sin, discouragement for Israel and for these people at this point, just constantly in this, man, I'm not good enough, and God's just disappointed in me. What that does is it causes you to waver from the truth. It causes you to waver from the truth. The reason we can stand strong is because he who promised is faithful. We are trusting his faithfulness, not ours. Now let that just redeem you right immediately. I've spent a great deal of my, of my life, especially recently, I've, expe- I, I've spent a great deal of my life murmuring and complaining about my imperfections and my shortcomings and my failures. I've spent a great time just murmuring about, ah, I'm bad at this, and I just feel surrounded by this, and I'm, I, sh- I fall short here, and I failed here. And do you know what it does? It paralyzes me from being effective. And I may sound like a prosperity preacher when I'm saying this, but it's true that your attitude puts you at a lower altitude with God. That that's just what happens. That when I'm feeling self-defeated about my character and complaining about my failures and my shortcomings and defining myself based off those, what happens is I stop being effective for God because I lose my confidence in the things I do for him. I start seeing acts of faith as, well, I'm just not, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. One of the greatest things, and I'm so sick of hearing it, when I'm like, oh, this person might be good for this, or like, hey, like, why don't we put this person here, and, and, I, and all of these things, and like, why don't we have this? One, one thing I hear is like, ah, I don't know if they're there yet. Like, none of us are there. None of us are there. And if you're waiting for yourself to be there before you start ministering to people, newsflash. You guys know I started pastoring here when I was like 16, 17 years old? Guys, I was still like 16 and 17 years old. Like, I wasn't like a special 16 or 17 year old. Like, think about all the annoying things that you find about 16 and 17 year olds. That was still true of me, right? That still existed. Like, there wasn't this... There wasn't this halo over my head, okay? I was still 16, struggling with 16-year-old problems. And something, like back then, I was way more confident in the Lord than I am now, sometimes. Because because right now, I'm like, ah, well, you know, I got experience, and I got these skills that I can offer God, and then I try to lean on those skills and that experience, and then God's like, dude, you still suck, Right? I'm like, oh, yeah, it was you all along, huh? And he's like, yeah, I'm still God, right? And I'm not saying that to brag about myself because I, I, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm worse right now sometimes, right? There's some, there's some points where I feel like I'm matured, but like I, 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 I'm telling you, your failures and your shortcomings ought to not define your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. That God wants to take your character and he wants to mold it and he wants to shape it and he wants to use it. Obvious things will disqualify you from doing other things, right? If I got up here and I was having an affair, all of you guys would expect me, get him out of there, right? It's not like, oh, but my failures, God will still eat. No, right? 
But I want to tell you, if you're constantly brooding on your imperfections, you're going to stop being effective for the kingdom of God. He says, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You can't force yourself to be fruitful. Guys, notice something about fruit? That you can plant it, and you can put it in good soil. You could water it, you could put it in the sun, but it's not going to bear fruit just because you want it to. Does that make sense? A plant isn't just, you, you can't just like force it to grow something, right? It grows in its own time because it's sunk into the vine. It has roots that go deep. And that's what it's saying right here. He's saying, establish yourself in the presence of God. Establish your confidence in the Lord. Root yourself deep in his word and an understanding of his character. And watch, even though you might have just been a little plant before, watch as fruit starts to grow from your branches. Plant yourself by the still waters of God's presence and watch as fruit grow. Not because you told it to, not because you forced it to, not because you're trying to hide anything, but because you're simply by God. It says in verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I, I want to tell you something. This is just a preacher moment. I gotta, this is a pastor moment, really. I, got, I, I just got to share with you guys that um, what we do here at church is incredibly important. What we do at church is incredibly important. It's not, a, it's not something you, like, ah, oh, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't type of thing. It's, it's important. It's very important. And now, it's not important because God loves you more if you go, right? It's not important to come here because Mark and I want people to listen to us, right? He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, he's saying, listen, listen, this place, that's what it's for. It's meant to stir one another up. Right? It's meant to be motivated a little bit. You come here, and it's, it's, it's not, and it helps us to not get lost in a stew of toxic thinking. Right? Because when we're alone and we're not surrounded by believers, what happens is we kind of just stew in this like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, any, any, any insecurities that you might have only get worse when you isolate yourself from the body of Christ, right? And so this place, it's not necessarily even meant to like, oh, we're going to just listen to the sermon and then take off. But a lot of it is so that, that Pastor Mark and I and whoever's teaching on this pulpit, Pastor Rob on Sunday mornings, is, so whoever's here, we can kind of just kind of bolster you up a little bit, stir you up to good works, right? Say, hey, live in grace. Go and do something good for someone, right? Right? If, if you get anything out of any sermon, it's like, hey, just go and don't be a jerk and go do something nice to somebody, right? Be nice, Right? And, and, and you come up here and you, should, you, you come here and you should be stirred up. And the pastor of Hebrews is imploring us to not neglect what happens here at church. Don't neglect it. Allow it to minister to you. The real mission is out there. Yes, the real mission happens and occurs out there. But what happens in here 
is an equipping of the saints and you guys being able to be refreshed by the presence of the Lord, right? And the pastor of Hebrews is saying, but what happens in here is very special. Here we're able to encourage one another, to bolster one another up. And you should be here and be like, do you know what? I'm going I'm to do something good this week, right? Or you should be here, do you know what? I have been neglecting my relationship with the Lord. Let, let's, let's kind of, let's rekindle that this week, right? That's what this place is for. Don't put too much, like, emphasis on the building of the church, right? A lot of good stuff happens here, but the real mission is in your classrooms, in your jobs, in your families, in your relationships, right? But what should happen here is, like, I'm going to come, I'm going to be discipled by people, and I'm going to disciple other people. Pretty simple, right? Pretty easy, yeah? So come to church. Yes? Yes? Yes, all right, cool. It says in verse 32, 32, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partner with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's saying that these people, like, when people, like, plundered their property, right, when people were, like, plundering their goods and stealing from them and they were publicly exposed to, like, affliction and some people were being beaten and some people were being taken away into prison, all of this stuff is happening. It says that they had compassion. Like, when they were sent into prison, they had compassion for those that were in prison. You know what I mean? Like, like Christians were sent into prison and they got to prison they're like, wow. Man, there's a lot of people that need Jesus here. Sweet, right? Like, like that, that, that was their attitude back then. And it, and it says right here, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's a big one, huh? Oh, I want you to imagine this for a second, guys, because I get a little riled up, right? <laughs> imagine this. It says that you, you joyfully accepted the plundering of a property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Just imagine crazy that this would happen, that the government takes something you own, right? Just insane quandary, right? They would never do that, right, in a million years, right? They would never take something that you earned, right? Um, yeah. So just imagine that the government even takes it a step further, right? That they take it a step further and they're just like, do you know what? Dig that laptop. Mine. Right? Like, and they just take your laptop, right? Or they go to your dorm room and they're like, oh, mini fridge, right? Like they just take it out of your dorm room and that's all you have anyways, right? They don't want your stinky sheets, right? So they just take everything that you have, right? They just take it all, right? Imagine these people when, when their stuff has been plundered, they're just like, do you know what? This just reminds me that, man, like I have such a great inheritance in the Lord. Man. And then they just go back to their business, right? Like, I want you to imagine that attitude, right? And that's the attitude that the pastor of Hebrews is saying that they used to have. They used to have. These people had their fair share of struggles, right? And they had had a history of being faithful in those struggles, right? They had a history of being incredibly faithful in those struggles. But something has had happened where they wavered and they kind of forgot those struggles and they got comfortable. But they continue, the struggles continue, the struggles abide. They, they, they continue to experience these. They had their fair share, fair share of struggles, as have you, right? You've had your struggles. 
I'm not one to tell you like, hey, you have it good. Like think of what the early church went through. You have no right to be upset at anything that ever happens to you ever unless your hands are being chopped off and your family's being taken. I'm not, I'm not that kind of pastor because I really do believe that what is, what is happening in your life that is a serious crisis to you is a serious crisis and it ought to be taken seriously, Right? It ought to be taken seriously, because if you really feel that, that's, that's something that's happening to you. What's important to me may be different for you. But, uh, something else may be important to you. And we, we know what it's like to have important things from us taken away. We know what it's like to be slandered or thrown in prison, so to speak, put in a pit of loneliness. We know what it's like to have things precious to us taken away, whether it be a material thing or a relationship or some sort of special thing. We know what it's like to lose, and we know what it's like. And, and even in that, for a lot of you, you found really good ways to help people as they have. To keep a positive attitude as have they, right? Some of you, you've gone through really intense stuff. Some of the people that I know that went through the most intense stuff in their lives are some of the most joyful people I know, Right? Because they know what it's like to really struggle, right? And they found coping mechanisms. We all try and find ways to cope and try good ways to have a better attitude about things. And that's a good quality because it is, and and in that we're like, do you know what? I'm just going to help people. I'm going to encourage people. I'm going to help them have a good attitude. Or maybe you had a bad childhood, so you want to make your childhood, uh, your kid's childhood better or, or whatever you may, whatever it may be for you in your life, you found good ways to cope and to give back to others. Because you know that it is far better to give than to receive. And we know that acts of selflessness are the greatest cures for struggles, right? That being selfless and, 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 and having altruism is, is a really good cure for brooding in whatever struggles and trials we've been. And I encourage you, if you've been just sitting in this cesspool of just loneliness and festering in your in your struggles and all your trials and stuff, I would encourage you kind of get out of that and start helping other people. Because it really is good for you. But, but, there's still that lingering, huh? Some of you have found really great coping mechanisms. You've been really selfless and you've pursued, but there's still this lingering sometimes. This lingering You've had a good attitude for a long time, but it's still there, deep down. That insecurity that you feel, that sin that you may have, that addiction that you may be struggling with, that feeling of isolation or loneliness, right? No matter how many people you surround yourself with, no matter how many ministries you've been plugged into or what kind of family members or relationships you've attached yourself onto, there's still just, just, just subtle rooting. That's often what causes me to want to shrink back. What happens in here and in here, right, is usually what causes me to shrink back. You know, other people can do stuff to me, right? 
Other people can slander me. Other people can diss me. Other people can do whatever, whatever they do, right, to us. We can find ways to be like, ah, they're just insecure, right? That's why they bully me, right? Like, or, or you know, she's just struggling. That's why she's gossiping about me. Or they're just jealous. Or what, whatever we say to kind of help ourselves deal with people being really bad to us, right? We find those coping mechanisms. But what often causes me, I don't know about you, to kind of shrink back from wanting to pursue God or shrink back from wanting to do something good for this world is this in here and this up here. Those lingering things. I'll end early. What we see here in verse 35 says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have a need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. My challenge to you, my charge to you, and the encouragement that we find here in Hebrews chapter 10 is do not allow yourself to shrink back into a shell of self-doubt and insecurity. Know that God takes pleasure in your success. That he wants you to succeed in your sanctification and you drawing closer to him. Whatever you may see in yourself, know that he sees it and loves you still. Know know that he has replaced whatever identity of insecurity you have built up in your head and he has replaced it with the righteousness of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, "Come to me, all you who are, um, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." And I think what happens, at least to me, maybe not to you. Once again, you're probably way more sanctified than I am, and further in your faith. But what I think what happens is that I get so caught up in preserving my reputation, my ministry, my grades, my relationship, my ego, my checkbook, my family. Or we get so caught up in preserving our reputations and our grades and our relationships and our egos and our checkbooks and our families. We, we, we're working on just preserving all these things. And it's just like a balancing act with like all these plates, right? It's just like trying to juggle all of these things, trying to preserve all of these institutions we have in our lives, all these relationships, all of these weird standards of what makes you good or bad in society, all these weird standards of what makes you a man, all these weird standards of what makes you a woman, right? All of these things that we're trying to preserve and we're trying to juggle. And I'm so busy juggling these things, and we might be so busy juggling these things that, and we're preserving all of this that we forget to preserve our souls. We forget to preserve our souls. And it says in verse 39, but... We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. And I'll I'll ask James and the worship team to come back up and we'll close. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I'll read that again. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I ask you this question. 
Have you been taking as much pleasure in God as God has pleasure in you? Have you been looking at yourself the way God looks at you? Have you been judging your successes the way God judges your successes? Have you taken time to understand your identity in him? Do you shrink back when you're filled with insecurity or do you press into the identity that Christ has built up for you? Or do you not even shrink back from insecurity, but you try to mask it by different forms of success, defining yourself based on your grades, your relationship, or your jobs, or your income, whatever it may be, your ministry? I encourage you to take as much care for your soul as God does. All is chaff and will blow away. All will be burnt up in the end, but your soul. Are you putting effort in the preservation of it? As we learn, are you taking a Sabbath? Are you abiding in the presence of God? Are you you taking steps to further your reputation or your professional life or your income? Or are you taking actual intentional steps towards the preservation of your soul and your joy and your countenance and the way you look at life? Or are you satisfied with pessimism? Does that make sense? We're going to worship tonight, and we're, we're, we're going to try and root ourselves in the identity that Christ has built up for us. So let's, uh, let's pray and let's worship. Pray with me. Lord, we, uh, we desire you tonight, and we desire that you would be, you'd be lifted up in our lives, and that we would take just as much pleasure in you as you do in us. Father, abide here. Live here, God. Make your home here, Jesus. And God, may may we worship you tonight with this sense of uh, intimacy with you and in pursuing you deeper. May we not shrink back in a, a shadow of our insecurities, Lord, but may we draw near to you with confidence, as it says. May we take hold of the confidence that you have given us, Lord. You ask us to enter into your presence, Lord, boldly. So boldly we approach your throne, giving you our lies and our insecurities and our shortcomings and our failures, and we ask, Lord, that you transform us. Whatever doubt we have in ourselves, Lord, may it be eclipsed by the great love and the plans that you have for us. We love you, Lord, and it's your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.